if you read uh, Jacob Cohen and Tony Greenwald and Paul Meal and Robert Rosenthal, they describe in the 1960s and 70s all the solutions, replication, registration, right, transparency, all of it's laid out. But they were restricted by and large uh, to uh, the methodology community. They did flare up and flare out a bit, but what they didn't wrestle with were two parts. One is the cultural incentives that drive the researcher's behavior. And even if I recognize that's the problem and I recognize that's the solution, if it's not gonna help me advance my career, choosing to do that solution is choosing to disadvantage my career because I have to do extra work that other people aren't gonna do, right? So that incentive problem is a major barrier to change. So if we don't address that, that's a problem. And the other thing that they didn't address in the 60s and 70s is implementation. How do I actually get those behaviors done? And if you don't attend to the fact that, sure, the idealists in 2008 were setting up their own webpage and adding this stuff, but it was extra work, right? It required knowing a lot of things that not every person knows and extra steps that uh, not everyone is gonna be prepared to do. So if you don't address the incentives problem and the implementation problem, no amount of knowledge about the solutions is going to solve it. And so I think those two additions to the overall discussion were critical in getting us to transition from, oh yeah, that's good in theory to, oh, I can actually do something uh, about this. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo, and I'm here with my co-host, James Heathers. And today, we're joined by a special guest, Brian Nozek, who is the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Open Science and professor at the University of Virginia. And you might also know Brian as the co-creator of the Implicit Association Test, a tool used um, by thousands of researchers uh, in the social sciences. Uh, thanks for joining us on the show today, Brian. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I want to start by asking, uh, what is the uh, Center for Open Science and how did it get started? Uh, the Center for Open Science is a nonprofit uh, technology and culture change organization that has a mission to increase openness, integrity, and reproducibility of research. Uh, so basically, that, that has three activities. One is meta-science, studying the process of science and seeing where are there reproducibility challenges, where do we have gaps in our efficiency and scientific practice, uh, and can we evaluate potential interventions that might improve that. Uh, the second uh, is building technology, and that's mostly what we do, uh, is building tools to make it easier for researchers to make the process of doing research and the outcomes of their research more accessible to others. So make it easy to register their designs, share their process as they go, archive their data and materials, make all of that accessible. Uh, and then the last part is a community-based effort, is can we shift the norms and standards and policies uh, of science to make it more open and reproducible? Uh, and so we have a variety of different sort of incentive-based programs that we try to convince journals and funders and uh, societies and research communities in general to adopt uh, to promote more openness. And then I can also talk about uh, the origins, but maybe that spurs a, a question or a comment. 
No, that's uh, interesting because I've, I've uh, unlike Daniel, who, uh, who lives in his uh, bloody husky wasteland at the top of the earth, I've, I've actually a, a rich husky met, wasteland, I've, rich husky <laughs> wasteland. As long as you're having fun, I've, we've, I've actually been to the Center for Open Science and met you, Brian, and you're, you're lovely in real life, which is why I asked you to be on the podcast because you're such a nice man. Um, entirely irrelevant too. It looks to me like I had no idea from a kind of an outsider's perspective going inside the Center for Open Science. I was walking around thinking, my God, this place is 75% engineers. Yeah. 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 That's the it's, unexpected element of what we do is that, you know, our uh, probably two thirds of our total staff is devoted to technology, entirely to technology. Yeah. Right, so your your point too there is that we actually have to build uh, systems and infrastructure, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and there's people do not realise in general how much back end there is on something like that, and what how many in elements need to work together. You just all they all they experience is oh oh no, it's su- suddenly it's slightly less seamless than it was before. <laughs> Doctor Doctor Nozek, you're killing me. So I, I I looked at your staff web pages, well, it's exactly the same. There's an awful lot of people. You've got like a UI UX person and a whole ton of systems engineers and a whole ton of kind of back-end developers. And man, you are, it is, you are really keeping the lights on when it comes to building tools. That's like the center of where the money and the interest goes is trying to actually give people the elements that they need to do this. Yeah, and a lot of the work for that is the invisible work that just guarantees that nothing goes wrong, right? It's very hard yeah. to, for the back-end engineers to get any credit uh, because they only get blame. <laughs> Why can't I access my stuff? Where did my file go? Yeah. What happened? This thing yeah. broke. The time is, you know, it's all of those errors. But they have, uh, they, their entire life is devoted to how do we make sure that the system is secure, that it is robust, uh, that files will never be lost, uh, that everything is preserved and is accurate. Uh, all of the stuff that one just takes for granted and hopes is true uh, when you're dealing with, uh, with, with your stuff, my materials. I, I guess yeah, the, the, the I, thing it's, it's super necessary if you've got, especially when it comes to sort of experimental data. Right. Or private information, except the, the, and you, you have to, and we, we have to fill out a form when we say, look, here's, here's a huge sack of data, and I'm sending it to Brian's website. Now, I promise you Brian's website is secure <laughs> enough for me to write down the name of 100 people with a, a particularly embarrassing social disease from my small town. Um, no one's, no one's going to pull that out of his server and then write to them uh, laughing about all the spots they got. It's, um, yeah, it's so that's, uh, and I think there is a sort of uh, occasional perception of anyone who forms a working group around an idea is that what do they mainly do? Well, what they mainly do is grandstanding, you know, or they, they mainly stand up at conferences and yell stuff and write big budget papers. But what you mainly do is literally engineering solutions. Yeah. Yeah. That's, ah, I, I, yeah, that is even, even sort of knowing about it and having actually been through your staff page, I only really understood that when I actually went there and and walked around. Yeah. What's really cool, what I hope we can do someday is uh, create a video to show the software development process and just how things go from an initial idea through actually being uh, integrated into production. 
because there's so many steps and so many members of the team are unpacking it, figuring out where it will go wrong, doing all of these tests of here's a way that someone could come in and screw around with the system and screw up what they're trying to do, you know, whatever it is uh, that could mm. go wrong. That's what they spend all of their time doing. And then it finally gets into production. It's like this one little thing. And you're like, oh, that, that's what it is. Great. I, I did need that. <laughs> but they spent four months right, trying to get it so that it could do that as effectively and efficiently as possible. So it's, it's a great team. Oh, it makes perfect sense. I bet Dan's next question is going to be something like, how did you go from being a psych professor to essentially running, uh, to essentially being kind of the, 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 the kind of nom- nominative CTO role in this sort of organization? God, oh, look at his face. That was definitely on there. It was definitely on there. Look at his little slack face. I totally picked that. That's exactly right. the next question. How, how did you do it? How did you move? <laughs> <laughs> I should have just said no, but I was, I'm genuinely interested. So uh, go, yeah. go on. How, how, did you, how did you move from those, uh, your position there? So, uh, well, the, I'll give the short version of the long story, which is I started undergrad as a computer engineer and spent four years in computer engineering before switching to psychology and women's studies. Uh, and then uh, went into psychology for graduate school. So always had a, a, a value of uh, technology and, and thought that technology can help with uh, pursuing research interests that I had. Uh, and then in graduate school started Project Implicit, which was creating a website so people could take the implicit association test and get feedback on their performance and learn uh, more about uh, this area of research but then also get some useful data. Uh, and so from that, uh, when I started as a faculty member in 2002, I got a, uh, an R01 from NIH to expand the project implicit infrastructure. Uh, and so my lab, right from the start, uh, has always had a portion that is a technology team. And so we've had from two to seven people uh, in my lab uh, for, until starting COS that were the team building the project implicit infrastructure and maintaining that. And so we've always had at least a comfort with trying to do scalable solutions for doing, at least in that case, behavioral research. And uh, thought about how, and then in parallel, have had an interest in maximizing quality of methodology. How is it that we can make our own stuff more accessible, more available, more uh, uh, more usable uh, by other researchers? So even in the in that initial R01 grant, I had applied for uh, a postdoc that would spend that person's entire time making all of our project implicit data publicly accessible so that researchers could use it. But of course, NIH oh. cut 10% from the budget, so that position got axed. So I wasn't able to devote uh, dedicated time that long ago to that. Uh, but uh, we proposed in 2007, 2008, uh, to NIH and NSF and a few uh, rounds of, uh, of applications to create what at the time we called an open source science framework. Uh, and uh, the basic idea was, let's just make a system like this that can help make data and materials more available. Uh, those did not uh, survive peer review, and so we dropped it. Uh, and it wasn't until 2011 when Jeff Spees joined my lab, or he was already in the lab, but he was looking for a dissertation project. Uh, and he had, uh, like I did, a, a, and much more so, a computer uh, software uh, background. 
And uh, so of the different projects he was considering, mostly substantive, he kept coming back to this idea that we both had a common interest in, which was to build some tools to make it easier to make more research transparent. Uh, and so he decided that I'm going to do it for my dissertation. I'm going to build the OSF for my dissertation. Uh, and so he's I've, I've met Jeff, and that's a very Jeff thing to say. <laughs> so it was a, a hard moment because we were both, you know, as his advisor, I said, look, this will prob would probably be the most impactful thing you could build, and it probably will end your opportunities to have an academic career. Uh, because what psychologist builds a technology infrastructure as their dissertation. You know, there was research attached to it, but it really was mm. a technology solution focused kind of dissertation. Uh, and uh, and so we, we just started doing that. We just used funds that I uh, had available from giving Project Implicit talks uh, to, to source it initially. Uh, and at the same time, we were doing starting this project for doing replications. Wouldn't it be interesting to actually try to replicate stuff? Everybody talks about it, it's hard. Let's do it and let's see if we can do it systematically. And so we started this crowdsource project, right, reproducibility project. Uh, and then these two sort of merged, right? The OSF and the reproducibility project became the same project because the OSF became the host to manage this big collaboration mm. of, uh, of yeah, researchers. Yeah, uh, became the, the backbone of how you organized all the pieces of the reproducibility project. Right, right. exactly. Which means you got kind of user testing at the same time and it all rolled into one glorious conflagration. Right, right. And so we released right. it publicly in the fall of 2012 uh, and the primary use was reproducibility project, but others just started to make use of the tool. Uh, and then funders started calling. And then they funded us. And then we started an organization. And, and now here we are. So now, a lot of, <laughs> it was like that. A lot of our listeners would be familiar with the uh, open science framework. Um, but for people that aren't, say, say you're a, you're a first-year graduate uh, psychology student, how can you use OSF? For, for your work? What's a typical test case scenario for how people can use OSF? Yeah, the OSF uh, is a, essentially a collaborative tool. Uh, so the, the main use case is I have projects, I need to manage those projects with collaborators. And so I can create a common space in the cloud where we can privately manage uh, all of the things that go into that project. Here's my IRB materials, here's my data, here's my materials. Uh, and in fact, I have this idea that pre-registration might be cool. I've heard about this. Oh, this tool allows me to pre-register it. So I can create a static uh, copy at a certain point, right before I'm ready to start data collection of what the project is, uh, add some metadata about how I'm gonna analyze it and what I'm gonna do with it, uh, and then create that version that is time and date stamp that can never change. And then I can continue with my project and add my data once I get it, add the analysis scripts when I get it later. And if ever at any point, in that life cycle of the project, I want to make things publicly accessible, I can make parts of it publicly accessible so that others can use it and cite it and be impacted by it. But really, the core use is so that I don't lose it for my own use, that I can manage this and our team can manage our projects. And when my collaborator explodes, I don't lose the information that that person had. Instead, it's all there uh, in this uh, web, uh, this, you know, this cloud-based collaborative space. 
no, no more excuses for when you get asked for your data and you're like, oh, we, we moved labs. The we, hard drive's gone. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, and this I, want is to ex- know, I want to know who you were collaborating with that the first thing across your mind was exploding them. <laughs> uh, I didn't explode and they exploded themselves. That was the problem, right? But this oh, is, this is right. really a problem that as, a story. You know, in my lab has occurred many, many, many times over the history of, yeah. of running the lab, which is, Everybody has their own ad hoc system for managing their data and their materials and their scripts. There's a lot of projects happening, right? A a person leaves without exploding, uh, and yet information is lost, right? Access to that is lost. And so it's just so complicated to recreate for our own use what our own old projects were, that that was the primary motivation for, let's solve a problem that researchers have today. And of course, there are... It's not subversive because we've been explicit about it the whole time, but our actual goal is make it so it's just a matter of intention to make that publicly available. Make it so it's just yeah. a matter of, do I want to commit to what this design is in advance to actually register it? So if we can make the aspirational, the idealistic aims in science of making things more transparent, easy to do, while solving problems that people have on a day-to-day basis, then they may actually do those things, right? Now all we have to do is change the incentives and norms so that people are want to do uh, those transparency behaviors. But now they have a system that makes it easy so that they don't have those pragmatic barriers. Yeah, because otherwise there's, there's there's plenty of people in in the absence of uh, in the absence of the the, the sort of hardware software infrastructure existing to be able to do that. There are plenty of people who for many years have been on their HTML only uh, psychophysics researcher furious looking kind of website that's got like one picture of their dog and everything else they've ever done in 1995 era bullshit. Now, if you really believe in it, you, it's perfectly easy to commit to that. But the center of what you're doing is not like, hey, this is like we're out here waving the flag. It's... If you use the tools here, you are now just, it, it is literally the, the, the public button for like, are you sharing all your stuff is, is literally just a button now. So because you've got, you've got, if we make the workflow manager as good as possible, all you're down to is, here we go, I'm going to share one with the microphone. All you're down to is done. Well, you have to do it twice because it says, are you really oh, sure? Brian, burn it down it? and start again. <laughs> right. That's it. So there's two, that last check. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I do like it that you actually added a, a feature to um, have an a, a invite-only link because quite often I think a lot of people were like, I don't want to do this. I want to send it to reviewers. Um, but now you can actually send uh, a reviewer-only link, which, um, which I've, I've used myself, actually. And, oh, uh, good. Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's a really handy feature. Um, so, yeah, but uh, I, I guess you, you had a lot of big ideas of what Open Science Framework and uh, the, the Center for Open Science would become when you first started. What, what surprised you about how things have developed over the years? Uh well, I mean, there's I guess there's there's too many surprises. You know, the, the, we certainly uh, did not anticipate the scale of change that is underway right there's it's Mm. easy to aspire to wouldn't it be great if the whole system was like this if the whole community decided screw this we're doing it a better way uh and pragmatically it's almost impossible to imagine how to achieve that (laughs) uh and so the the interesting element for me just as an experiencer of being part of this community that has changed all of these practices 
is that the aspirational setting is actually not so unrealistic. Like the, the sort of the needle of how far can we actually move the field keeps moving up mm. to say, you know what, this actually is possible. It's not just there's a few idealists and we're gonna do things a little better. It's no, no, there, there are a lot of people that have ideals and they're being pragmatic and the, pragma, the pragmatists are saying, oh, you know what, we might actually be able to do this. Yeah, actually let's change our policies. Registered reports is a great example, right? For, I think every graduate student at some point in early in their career says, this is re publishing systems ridiculous. People should review based on the quality of the methods, not the results that come. This is absurd, right? How many late night conversations have, has that been in sort of that angst of am I in the system? Well, now it exists. Now there are journals that do review based on the quality of the methodology and the question being asked. There are 131 journals as of today. Right, that's 131. 131. I've just got used to. I've I've only just got used to telling people there was more than a hundred. Now I've got to I've got to <laughs> like update my almost. bloody priors with 131. 131. Right, and and day before or Friday, I another uh, editor said, and we are going to sign up our journal too. So it will be 132, and there's others, you know, obviously doing. But it's just the uh, the fact that once the dam is opened, I think mm. yeah. that that the community, everyone has. Uh, ideals, not everyone. There are there's widespread agreement on some of the ideals of science, and there's widespread agreement that I, as an individual, can't change it. And so the the fact that we sort of have this community coming together of, well, no, I can't change it, but but we can, we can, right? That sort of that feeling of agency uh, that has emerged over the last five years of collective action is the most surprising and exciting uh, part of this whole thing. Well, yeah. now, well, we I suppose, suppose you sort of, you, 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 you hope, you hope, don't you? Just, uh, that, that is a lot of, I, I, I think of late night conversations in, in those terms. Like exactly what you just said. Why does it work like this? What have we become participants to? And then, <laughs> what, I, I, I wonder. I wonder what the tipping point is. Is it the tool? Is it the attitude? Is it the attitude meeting the tool? Because at some point in time, I do remember from about sort of two thousand and eight, two thousand and ten. Um, I knew some really old school share everything open science. Why wouldn't you just stuck stick it on the internet? Kinds of people, and. They were, they had convictions, right? Um, they certainly were, they were very well-reasoned convictions. Some of them were a bit odd. Some of them were perfectly <laughs> straight. Some of them were perfectly straightforward. But it was a distinct minority of people who all kind of knew each other. And then some function has been applied to how this is regarded. And I wonder what the center of it is. Because I'm not satisfied with the answer of, well, it was just time, wasn't it? It's not a microwave. It's like a global community of people. I wonder what the center of that was. Yeah, and I, I don't think it's a one thing, right? The, uh, there, I think that we have a convergence of the necessary elements to make social change, right? So what are those elements, uh, right? One is recognition of a problem. So the whole if you know people love the term crisis and hate the term crisis but the whole emergence of a conversation around reproducibility 
that was tied to, you know, as as everyone has talked about ad nauseum, right? The fraud cases, the ESP cases, all these sorts of interesting cases of, wait a second, what are we doing here? That global conversation of, is there a problem? What is the problem? How can we describe the problem? Was one element, right? And that moved out of just methodologists talking. It's now everybody talking about it. A mm. second element is there's actually behaviors that one could do that people are saying are the solutions. Here are the ways in which you can avoid those problems. And so there, there's not just, and th those have been described previously, right? If you read uh, Jacob Cohen and Tony Greenwald and Paul Meal and Robert Rosenthal, they describe mm. in the 1960s and 70s all the solutions, replication, registration, right, transparency, all of it's laid out. Uh, yeah. So the and the nature of the problems themselves, the, of pro course, the problems were, but they were restricted by and large uh, to uh, the methodology community. They did flare up and flare out a bit, but what they didn't wrestle with were two parts. One is the cultural incentives that drive the researchers' behavior, and mm -hmm. even if I recognize that's the problem and I recognize that's the solution. If it's not going to help me advance my career, choosing to do that solution is choosing to disadvantage my career because I have to do extra work that other people aren't going to do, right? So that incentive problem is a major barrier to change. So if we don't address that, that's a problem. And the other thing that they didn't address in the 60s and 70s is implementation. How do I actually get those behaviors done? And if you don't attend to the fact that, sure, the idealists in 2008 were setting up their own web page and adding this stuff, but it was extra work, right? It required knowing a lot of things that not every person knows and extra steps that uh, not everyone is going to be prepared to do. So if you don't address the incentives problem and the implementation problem, no amount of knowledge about the solutions is going to solve it. And so I think those two additions to the overall discussion were critical in getting us to transition from, oh yeah, that's good in theory, to, oh, I can actually do something uh, about this. We are gonna take a quick break and we'll be back soon. Dan here, taking you through the break. I just wanna give you a quick reminder of the various ways you can support the show. It would mean the world to us if you were to share the show with your friends on Twitter and Facebook. Our Twitter handle is at Hertz Podcast. That's H-E-R-T-Z Podcast, one word. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or just want to say hi, hit us up via message on Twitter or Facebook. You can also rate the show on iTunes or you can leave a review. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Everything Hurts. Today, we are chatting with Brian Nosick about all things open science. Uh, Brian, what's the best place to for people to find you online? To find me online? Yeah, uh, Twitter. I, yeah. I guess the my my most general engagement is via Twitter, uh, and that uh, and and it's been very useful to sort of see what is happening in the community and then have rapid. Oh, I think this is interesting to share uh, to get that out. So that's been my most reliable mechanism of of dissemination lately. And your name's uh, B B Nozick. Is that? Uh, it's Brian. It's at Brian, Brian Nozick. Yeah, all one. There word. we go. Yep. So everyone, you can know uh, uh, the the benefits of an odd surname. I got my name too. That's great. 
Yeah, yeah, it's good. There is, I know of one other Brian Nosek in the world, uh, and I think he coaches wow. football in Illinois or something like that. And I tried to friend request him on Facebook, and he never responded. I thought, come on, this is not a usual yeah. We've got to bond over this. What's but, that? Nope, nope. No, What's plenty. that? So, that's so odd. Um, I know a guy in Australia, actually, who was a, he, he started a, like a casual project. He's a very odd, quiet kind of dude, and he started a project to meet everyone who had his exact name all over the world. <laughs> he's, called, he's called Michael Ting, and there's lots of Michael <laughs> Ting that I've met. I think, I, I met, I think he's, he's, he's met three or four of them so far. He's making his way through a list. They're like, hey, what's his name? We should, we, should, we should start a club. How about that? It's like a union for people. Now there's, uh, there's lots of there's lots of people who who have your name, Daniel. I know because I've occasionally Googled it with like crimes on the end. To there's see if you've, uh, <laughs> committed them. There's a lot. In, there's a lot in Latin America. A lot in Spain as well. So it is a it is a very very uh, very common name. Uh, are there now, are there many in Mexico? There'd be a ton in Mexico. There, there, there's oh, right. in, okay. there's in Norway. Well, you can understand what you can understand my previous confusion. Now let's let's get back to uh, let's get back to open science. Uh, Brian, I, oh, yes. I want to um. Uh, I want to talk about this recent uh, social sciences replication project. It's a, a paper that came out in Na- Nature Human Behaviour uh, about a month or two ago. Uh, can you walk us through what, what you uh, did or uh, what, what the gist of this project? Yeah. The uh, main idea was the proje- of the project was to uh, get more evidence about the reproducibility of social behavioral science research. Uh, there are a number of these large-scale projects, the many labs projects, where we identify a set of uh, findings and then have dozens of labs try to reproduce those. There was the reproducibility project in psychology that tried to, that sampled 100 studies from three journals uh, and try to reproduce those. In this one, uh, we identified a sample of social science experiments published in Science or Nature between 2010 and 2015. There were 21 total. There can't be that many of them, right? Is that 21 total, like all the ones you found or all the ones that were available to do? Or? So they are all the ones that we could do. Uh, so we right. had an inclusion criteria that it had to have a treatment effect as the main outcome. So it had to be an experiment yeah. with random assignment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it had to be feasible to do with uh, samples that we could get access to. Uh, so that's you know running it on MTurk or running it in one of our labs. There were five different labs that were involved in this project. Uh, so there were a number of projects that were very large uh, or very instrumentation intensive or otherwise that got eliminated. Uh, and so it's, a, it's only that subset that were achievable uh, through relatively ordinary or modest means. We had funding, but it wasn't mm. major funding to do uh, massive uh, high instrumentation cost projects. Uh, so that set of 21, uh, we... Uh, designed it to, you know, we got the original materials from original authors and we could. We designed protocols uh, as effectively as we could, uh, asked them for feedback. Most of the, the original authors were, by and large, very generous uh, with their time uh, and supporting the quality of the designs. Uh, we set it up so that it would be a very high-powered test of the original finding, uh, and it was d- designed in two phases so that we would have, essentially, by the end of it, we'd have sufficient power to detect an effect, even if it was half the original effect size. And the reason that we did that was that the uh, or these earlier replication studies 
uh, found that on average, the effects were about half of what the original effect size was. And that could be a function of straight up publication bias, could be partially a function of false positives. There's lots of different ways, in, or it could be a function of you know, uh, lack of um, uh, uh, support, lack of a uh, quality of methodology uh, compared to what the original was. So to uh, maximize the chances for reproducing the findings, we had this uh, high-powered design, which ended up the replication studies had about five times the original sample size. Uh, so they were high-powered in comparison. Uh, and then the result was, the top line result is that across a variety of different uh, criteria for evaluating replication success, we're able to reproduce about 13 of the 21 original findings. Um, so that's of interest in its own, just in terms of helping to add more evidence about where there are reproducibility challenges. The additional things that we were uh, interested in this were advancing particularly whether we can anticipate which findings would replicate or not. And by we, I mean the research community. And so what was conducted uh, independently of the replication studies was that we had prediction markets and surveys that were administered mm. to 200 researchers uh, to bet on whether they thought each of these individual findings would replicate or not. Uh, and what we observed in that was very strong predictive accuracy, that the markets and the surveys uh, both anticipated which findings were more likely and less likely to replicate. Uh, and the correlations were something like 0.8 or something between replication uh -huh. success uh, yeah. and the prediction market <laughs> value. Uh, so that suggests that there is insight. This isn't just random uh, which effects are replicating and which aren't, but actually there's some knowledge base uh, that people are drawing on uh, to, um, to estimate which findings are more or less plausible with whatever criteria that they're using. Uh, so that's the hmm. top line summary of, of what we got from that project. Yeah, that's absolutely, yes. that's kind of damning in, in a way because the, the, the same researchers uh, that, you, that you would survey are the same type of people who are both the editors of these journals and the reviewers of these journals. So if the if these researchers, if, the, if these if a lot of these studies can't pass the sniff test of this is going to replicate, yeah. then someone somewhere is, is is dropping the ball. Yeah. Yeah. This is an interesting part of trying to figure out what to do about this, right? And a lot have exactly the response you do is that the problem here is at the front end that we are letting things through into publication that are not so likely to be true uh, or at least we're more skeptical of and for me that's not a problem uh, the I think it's useful to get information out even implausible findings out uh, into the literature in order to scrutinize them uh, so the, if we set the bar so high at the front end uh, that the, you have to have an ironclad case and if it's implausible, you need to have 30 experiments to show that you can get it, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Uh, then what we, would, we could potentially do is dramatically increase conservatism in what researchers are willing to study and willing to claim. And I don't think hmm. that's the productive uh, Part, that, that would be particularly productive for science, right? We are trying to push innovation, and we're going to get it wrong. We're going to get it wrong a lot, but that's okay. We're studying problems that are hard. We don't know what, what's true and what isn't. So really what we want to do is get some evidence out there and have the self-corrective process of science actually work. And that's where I think the problem is, is that what we have done erroneously in our reward system 
is prize innovation, allow lots of things to get into the literature that are interesting, exciting, and implausible, but then fail to follow up on them, right? We don't yeah. have an ethos of replication, of confirmation, uh, of supporting that, that self-corrective effort. And so and, really and it's just get it into the system and then it sort of becomes true <laughs> uh, and it's hard to get out. And speaking of yeah, failing to well, follow you up, see you see so many people walk, walk off results like that as well. There's a sense, there's a sense to which you've, if 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 uh, what's fancy at any given point in time is allowed to be a narrow focus on a particular topic. There are researchers who are kind of ambulance chasers in terms of, well, that's the latest thing. I'm going to roll it with into whatever narrative milieu I've got going on. They nail it down, and then they move on to the next thing, which is sort of it, it becomes sort of a it's, it's sort of re- research as an associative promotional vehicle rather than as something that's designed to establish any propositional knowledge you could ever find again. And it's still it's still widely regarded. Ah, oh, they're working on the latest thing. Of course they are. It's still widely regarded as not a bad thing. It's like, oh, you should do that. That's a smart move. As opposed to the center of the problem along with celebrity culture bullshit that infects, uh, you know, who's doing great at any given point in time. And you you submitted this, you submitted this paper originally, or one of your original submissions was to science, wasn't it? Mm. And thinking about um, the the, the pottery barn rule where journals should be be accepting replications, this... uh, yeah. Uh, can, can, can you briefly walk us through what happened when you actually submitted this um, to, 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 to science? Yeah. The, yeah, we, we had submitted both to science and uh, nature uh, okay. f- before having it get published in Nature Human Behavior. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, my, my basic comment is that they should publish what they want to publish. The fact that they rejected, that's fine. I, it, it didn't hurt me. We did just fine with this paper, uh, getting it into nature, human behavior, and getting it uh, 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 discussion about it in the literature. So I, I, there's no harm from my perspective. But it is interesting in terms of how journals think about uh, these kinds of papers and findings in terms of what they decide to publish. My perception yeah. of, this, of the science reviews uh, were that they didn't frame it in terms of their decision process in terms of the Pottery Barn rule. Like, this is an evaluation mm. of our own literature and we need to p- think about publishing it because of uh, what it is that we have published previously. Rather, they framed it in terms of, well, it's only 21 studies and we published one with 100 uh, and this doesn't say a whole lot about the social science literature writ large, right? We don't know how well this generalizes. And so they weren't thinking about the findings that they had. They were thinking about what's this say about the science more generally in terms of their perception of the overall impact. And they had you know, critical reviews of, of what they thought was limitations of the project and otherwise. Um, and I think nature sort of thought about it in the same terms, at least in, in that, uh, in, in the exchange there. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's what happens. That's peer review. Oh, it's interesting. So, uh, I, I, my my students do this all the time now. They've they've learned that 
you can criticize more or less anything for its failure to generalize until you get to down that great study where they studied every man in Sweden. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that, that one, that one, that that one, that one generalizes. But more or less everything else, you can always throw the rock that says uh, this doesn't explain enough, right? Um, that that is a stone that you can always throw if you don't like don't like something. I, the 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 idea that the journals that where these are specifically drawn from, where you specifically replicated the the, the studies that they themselves are responsible for being the conduits to the world. Their primary criticism was <laughs> these don't represent things. These don't represent studies in in other journals. Like how 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 much does this result generalize? Well, it generalizes as far as your journal, mate. So I mean, that feels very sort of. It feels like a a lot of the time when when something like this happens, and this is a, a one of those papers that requires people to really throw their heads back and reevaluate something they might think they know. Um, how they're treated. There's. There's very often, in when you, you hear these stories, you, you, my first thought often is, well, that's convenient, isn't it? Isn't that a, that's a convenient criticism? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice if that was the case? I'm f- forever sceptical about sort of, you know, there's a large replication effort, and they go, oh, yeah, but we don't publish. Oh, that's convenient that you don't want to look at that. There's an awful lot of... Um, it, it feels like occasionally, and I don't know if you'd necessarily agree with this because I'm cynical and dead inside, uh, th- there are an awful lot of excuses that just happen to be, well, that's sort of, it's, it's politically expedient in some way that that is the case. It's very often the response to large structural processes that make science look bad. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, in this case and and maybe this maybe this generalizes to other cases my sense is that the evaluation of the paper or these kinds of projects would be different uh, in a registered reports model right so if we had submitted mm. uh, we actually we did uh, we, the editor editorships changed and so the interesting history of this project was that we originally proposed the SSRP project, Replications of Science and Nature, to science as a registered report. Uh, science doesn't offer registered reports yet, but we said, here's, a, here's an interesting case to try it. And the editor at the time uh, said, yes, I want to do this. Uh, and it ultimately didn't happen because she couldn't get uh, enough so- associate editors to agree to do the work for it because uh, they say, oh, I don't know about this. Yeah, so I don't know what the internal machinations were, uh, but they couldn't get the associate editors on board to do because it was a lot of work, this project, right? 21 different papers. They would have had to go through peer review and do the back and forth in advance. Uh, and so because she couldn't get that, uh, the sort of esprit de corps internally uh, to do that, uh, they didn't proceed. And so... Uh, then we just went ahead and did the project and then submitted it after the fact and it, it didn't get in. Uh, but I think the perception of is this, do we need to know this? Is this important work? Is this, will this be of interest to have these replication results? Is actually a different computation when you don't know what the results are, right? And so I think the reviewers <laughs> and editors would say, oh, actually, yeah, this, this is really interesting. If we think it's going to be competently performed, if we agree that the methodology is good, that this actually provides information value. But then once it's presented, you start to change entirely to think about it in terms of what am I getting out of these results? And the questions yeah. like that generalizability then come up. 
But you don't think about, oh, all of this generalizability when it's the, uh, up front, I think. You think about what is it that these data could give us that would be mm. useful, rather than here I see the mm. data, now what do I do with that data, right? Which is a, a very different way of framing it. Like I mentioned before, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's incredible being, um, uh, I've started reviewing a few registered reports and just seeing how the whole process works. And I'm like, yeah. this, this is just exactly how hypothesis-driven science should be done. Yeah. You're purely evaluating the methods. You're thinking very carefully about the sample size. You're thinking very carefully about how you can possibly falsify a hypothesis. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And Dude, I, I, is I, it, isn't it, is it fun? Easier? I haven't got to review one. I haven't got to review one yet. Is it easier? You both probably have. I'm sure Brian has. So now you have two, Dan. What's it? Is it is it easier than reviewing a normal paper? Because I imagine that it is. It, it, it is in one sense. What do you think? Um, because all you're, all you're evaluating is the, 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 the methods and the, the rationale. Um, but I found that for this, I thought a lot more carefully about it. Um, so I spent much more time than I did on a typical review because I was thinking, one, this, was, um, this, this is going to be a, a consequential paper for the field once it's whatever the results are. And uh, I, I just had a, a responsibility to, to, do, to do it right. And I spent a lot more time really thinking about, is this going to be the right method? Because I'm thinking when the results come out, I don't want to be the guy... Or, or, or the person thinking, oh, well, you should have done this. Well, no, that's, that's, on, that's on me. I can't say you should have done something. That was me. So I was yeah. literally thinking about all the possible yeah. things. Would I possibly criticize the sample size, the methodology, the analysis, everything? So maybe I spent, I don't know, th- three times as much time as I did in a t- typical review. And some that's people might right. say, oh, oh th- th- this, this, is, this is bad for, this, this is going to take up you know, researchers' time. But I didn't care because I knew this is going to be important. And when the results come out, um, it's, it's, it's going to be fantastic for, for, for my subfield. For More than important, it's going to be important enough to make you look bad if you do anything stupid. Exactly. Uh, yeah, but uh, I, 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 yeah, exactly. So it's, you just want to make sure you're doing, you're doing it right. <laughs> and I, I had no qualms spending extra time on, on, on doing this because it's, it's just it's, it's the way it should be done. It's just, it was so, it's so, it's so obvious. But um, yeah, we, 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 we're getting there. And yeah. 130. Third journal, 131 journals. 132. 132. Yeah. 132. 132 it's about with to one be 132. Yeah. 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 And it's the great part of being a reviewer of one of these is that the, the evaluation actually m- can make a difference to the quality of the work. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so the- Yeah, you're not in the time machine. You're not in the yeah, time machine. Yeah. The, you know, in the normal process, my critical evaluation of their methodology is only sticking it to the authors, right? It's saying you screwed it up and this is why your research is bad and this is why it can't be published. And that doesn't feel good as a reviewer uh, and it doesn't feel good as an author. And it does, uh, and wh- where's the help? In registered it's hor- reports- It's horrible, it's horrible to it, do that. If have you ever just like said, given bad news to a PhD student, even if it's totally justified, you feel like such a dick. Yeah. Like, sorry about sorry about all your time. Right, right, yeah. The, <laughs> you'll the, never waste, get back. the waste in the system is unreal. But in registered reports, right, I give that critical feedback and they say, oh, yeah, well, we can change this. We can do that. We yeah. can do that, right? And as an author, I get that critical review of my methodology uh, for a registered report and I say, that's great. Wow, what an amazing insight. Or if I disagree, here's why I disagree and we can debate about the methodology. But it is productive because it is in advance. The project will be better uh, for having gone through this review rather than the purpose of this review was to say everything that went wrong. And so that extra time that might be invested is long-term is savings. 
right? The early reports, I don't have the definitive numbers on this because we haven't been, uh, we're, we're still gathering evidence from the uh, journals that have adopted register reports. But the early evidence was suggesting that the acceptance rate for registered reports was multiple times better than acceptance rates for regular submissions, right? So a journal that has like a 15% acceptance rate for regular submissions might have like a 50% acceptance rate for registered reports, right? And so the, 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 the reason, I think, uh, and this still remains to be studied, so I'm all speculating here, is that if there is a good idea, there is value in the iteration in the review process to improve it to be a publishable idea. Uh, and the effect of that has a whole big impact on the overall efficiency of the peer review system. Right, because that one journal takes responsibility for that. Whereas my crappy papers that get rejected at journal A and then go to journal A minus and get rejected and then go to journal B plus and get rejected, <laughs> I, you know, I go down the scale until I can finally get it in somewhere. That is a massive burden across all of those editors and all those journals. If instead yeah. we move to a model where we have more collaborative process between editor, reviewer, and author to actually get that work into publishable shape, we all win. That is uh, that's uh, a great way of putting it. Let's, and I'd... let's all win. <laughs> well, uh, today we have uh, unfortunately run out of time, but uh, thanks thanks for joining us again, uh, Brian. And uh, we'll be sure to to, to post uh, all the links to the um, to, to the papers and uh, to the um, Center for Open Science and Open Science Framework online. Yeah, great. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey. It's been it's it's very it's nice it's nice to to see you again. It's very odd seeing because I know both of you from such different circumstances. Seeing both of you on either sides of the screen here, it's a weird, it's a funny little meeting of the world. But this is what podcasting's all about: making a making a community and helping people. And it was and, inter- uh, it was international and, uh, podcast day yesterday. At the apparently, I was just getting to that, Daniel, and that's why we had Red, international Red podcast mind. day. That's and, why we've been co-hosting for sixty-nine episodes, oh, James. I know. Oh, so Brian gets to be episode sixty-nine. Yeah. How about that? Lovely. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's all go do our jobs and whatnot, shall we?